0: I, I think this whole COVID thing was simply a beta test, a an initial uh, trial run for the real thing, and I, I suspect the real thing is going to be over something like climate change.
1: Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to the Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I am joined with theologian and pastor from. Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. That is Doug Wilson. He has not only contributed to his church over there, but he has contributed exponentially around the world to the greater church through his sermons, through his writings, through his teachings, through his popular podcasts, and much more. And I feel incredibly privileged to have you here. So I just wanted to welcome you on and thank you so much for joining me this morning in Australia.
0: Well, happy to do it. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Now, at the moment in Australia, um, it's been quite challenging for those of us Christians sort of over here in the last couple of years. Um, And to be honest, it feels like not much is really making sense. And not only that it's not making sense, that it's incredibly inconsistent. Um, And something that a lot of us have appreciated is um, your consistency, particularly on matters to do with COVID and the church's response around that. Um, And I sort of wanted to ask you sort of the question, like where you sort of stand on the church's response with COVID, particularly I think the big Eva or the corporate sort of church and how they've responded and where you possibly think they've mishandled it and um, sort of how you think they could have handled it probably better than they have.
0: Yeah, I I would divide the broad evangelical church into three sections. Um, the first section would be those churches that simply folded like a cheap suit. They just, they just shut down and they, and they disappeared. Um, and to that quadrant of the church, I would say good riddance. You know, it, if, uh, if it took that uh, little tiny amount of a breeze to blow you over, that, then that shows that the people who are the faithful Christians in your churches needed to find a better home. Um, the Lord was cleaning out the deadwood. So there's there's that. Then there are the people who are good Christian folks, but they've been very poorly taught over a course of a generation or two. And th- they love the Lord and they love the Bible and they know the gospel but they don't know how the church is supposed to interact with unbelieving society, with the civil government. What is Romans 13 all about? And so they're they floundered or uh, flailed and came up with easy answers that didn't add up. You know, so it's, it's more like confusion. Um, and then there's been a handful of enclaves, a handful of places where Within within a few weeks of the onset of the COVID hysteria, they saw right through it and saw that this is uh, this is not make this is this is not right, and uh, and began resisting either from day one or from month one. They 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 were resisting the uh, overreach and the demands that the uh, civil government was making in the name of public health and the. The reason there's any hesitation at all is I I don't I don't have any objection to the civil magistrate having responsibility for public health. I, I think that that actually is one of their responsibilities. And if um, if we were holding a worship service, and the fire chief came in and interrupted the service and and said, "Hey, everybody, your roof's on fire," um, I don't think we'd have to have a meeting of the elders to decide whether the fire chief was born again or not, or, (laughs) you know, we would, we would submit to that and, and we'd file out and run the fire drill and that's what we do. But if that happened three or four weeks in a row, and we never could find any trace of a fire um, at some point, somebody's going to start asking awkward questions. And if you don't, if, if nobody asked awkward questions, then that would be a sign of, I guess, cowardice or cravenness that is just not appropriate in a, in a ministry.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned um, at the beginning Romans 13 because a lot of um, our church leaders over here used Romans 13 to justify segregating the church. A lot of, mm-hmm. um, of our leaders have used um, almost theology, I guess, or their understanding of theology against people sitting in the pews like myself. And it's interesting, our leaders have been saying a lot of things that are quite confusing to to some of us. Um, And, you know, we have been resonating with other voices outside of our individual church, voices like yourself and other sort of ministers um, around the world who have been sort of speaking, and it's it's really difficult um, sitting in the pew and not being able to resonate with your own shepherd, with your own minister. Um, And as I said, you know, um, these particular vaccine mandates hit Australia pretty hard to the point where it hit our churches and our churches actually shut down services for those of us who were unvaccinated. Um, And they even today, when the government itself has uh, ceased the vaccine mandates, the churches, some churches, sorry, have still continued with this. And they actually are running two separate services, one for the unvaccinated to attend and one for the vaccinated to attend. And not only that, we're seeing our theological colleges and places where ministers go to sort of train Are not allowed to attend in person to the lectures or to the study they have to do it all via zoom online and these are things that our so-called church in australia has done on their own back on their own accord post government mandates ending now because of this, a lot of us feel like refugees. A lot of us don't really know what to do. I have family members who um, were ministers of a church who weren't even allowed to stand behind their own pulpit and sort of administer the gospel to their congregation. And a lot of us at the moment don't really know what, how to respond to this. Do If these churches sort of decide to eventually open up their doors to everybody again, is this does this fall in the category of, us sort of justifying never going back there again should we be seeking alternative churches and what sort of sort of advice would you give to those of us who are sort of in that position
0: I would I would say if a church opens up again and they and they open up again and they just say all clear we're going to meet again because the government says it's okay um then I think it's uh, that's your signal to not go back again If the church opens up again and says humbly to the people in the pew, we learned a lot from this last go-round. We repent of the decisions we made, and we're promising you never again. All right? We're not going to do that again to you. Um, Then I think that's um, sufficient for you to entrust yourself to their leadership again, uh, because they have, have acknowledged the fault. They acknowledge the difficulty, but if they, if they refuse to acknowledge the fault, even with all the, um, information that's now flooding in on how bad this vaccine is, um, <laughs> um I, I think, well, man, what would it take to get people to admit their error? Um, so basically, if they if they just try to brazen it out and say, OK, uh, you can come back now uh, and we'll be magnanimous with you and we'll for, we'll forgive you for not getting vaxxed um, and you can come. I wouldn't. Uh, I would I would find a group of people who will not shut down the next time.
1: I wanted to also sort of get your theological understanding on Romans 13, because I, something I've noticed during this last two years is certainly a misunderstanding of that biblical text, because I, my understanding of that, and I'm not going to pretend I'm a theologian, but my understanding of Romans 13 is, you know, we obey the law of the land unless it contradicts the law of God and his, and I guess, you know, you render to Caesar things that belong to him, but you render to God things that belong to him. And my understanding is the church does not belong to Caesar. Um, and so for me sitting in the pew, I, I was quite confused, especially when I sat at home and I, I watched ministers try to implement the sacraments from their basement via zoom. That to me was quite (laughs) confusing. Um, (laughs) and so I just sort of wanted your sort of understanding of Romans 13, because a lot of people, as I said, use that to justify the closing of the churches.
0: Um, yes. Um, to, to, for a minister to attempt to administer the sacraments, if you want to take, partake of the bread, click here. Um, that, that's just the internal Gnosticism coming, coming out. It, it's just that's not what the assembly of the saints is. Uh, the, God's people should gather in the same space, be breathing the same air, you should be taught by someone whose life you can see and imitate, and the elders should pass out the bread and the wine, and the water that's administered in baptism has to be actual water that gets you actually wet. Um, so basically, that that is very uh, revealing. To to approach it that way is, is very revealing. The, uh, with regard to your, your question about Romans 13, uh, this is, I, th- I think, a crucial um, a crucial issue. But Romans 13 does not teach that we have to do whatever the government says to do. Um, the, you alluded to the Lord's teaching in the gospel, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The first thing to note is one of the things that does not belong to Caesar is the authority to decide what belongs to Caesar. He doesn't, he's not in charge of that. Um, Jesus is the one who gave us the, um, criterion and the criterion is, uh, the money I've, an American quarter has a picture of George Washington on it. If it has Washington's picture on it, I can send it to Washington. Okay. It's lawful to render to Washington. What has Washington's image, um, but the other half is not often remarked on, and that is, he says to God the things that are God's. Well, how do we tell what belongs to God? Well, what has God's image? Well, we do. Right, we have God's image on us, so the coin has the Caesar's image. We have God's image. That means we may not render ourselves to Caesar. Um, we, we can give a payment. We can do certain things that He managed, if he manages to get his picture on it, then we can lawfully give it back to him in return, but we have God's image on us. And what has happened in this last go round is Caesar demanded that we render to Caesar that which has God's image on us. And moreover, he required that we put a mask over on top of that image, right? Um, so we are being transformed. Um, The apostle Paul says in Corinthians, we with unveiled face, we we worship God with unveiled face and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So as we behold God and worship, the image of God in us is being restored. But Caesar came in and says, uh, I want you to render yourself to me. And I want you to cover that image of God up. And, and the fact that Christians went along with this shows that their instincts were all in the wrong place. Now, that said, specifically, you asked about Romans 13. I don't want to go on and on. You, you asked for the time, and I'm giving you the history of watchmaking. Um, but the, uh, So, in Romans 13, we're told to subject ourselves to the higher powers, and it says... Th- Uh, multiple times in that passage, I think three times in that passage, it says no authority is, uh, well, it says all the civil authorities are God's deacon. And the word used there is diakonos, the same word for deacon. So the civil magistrate is God's deacon to reward the righteous and to punish the wrongdoer. So when you are dealing with the civil magistrate, you're dealing with God's servant, God's deacon. And God's deacon only has the authority to do or require to be done what God requires of them to require. All right. So uh, uh, when you're dealing with an employee at a store, uh, the manager gave the marching orders to the employee. Uh, When you're dealing with a civil magistrate, you're dealing with someone uh, who ha- who is under orders from God Himself? So it's not just that God has given His authority to the magistrate, which He has; He's also given the marching orders to the magistrate. And Christians need to understand that when Paul wrote these words, uh, the uh, he, well, I'll put it this way: you you may have heard in all the debate about this that Paul wrote these words when Nero was. Uh, when Nero was the emperor and Nero was one of the great dirt bags of history. Uh, and that's true enough. But the first few years of Nero's reign, uh, he was pretty stable. He was not, he was not a persecutor not, not a bad guy. That's when uh, Seneca, the philosopher was still his advisor and Seneca sort of had his foot on the brake and, but Paul saw trouble coming and you you have to understand that the man who wrote Romans 13 was subsequently beheaded by the Romans, and, and they did not behead him because they thought he was a model citizen, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, another passage is First Peter 2. First um, Peter 2 t- says that we're to be in subjection to rulers and authorities. Well, Peter... The man who wrote those words disappeared from the Book of Acts, a wanted man. Uh, Paul, the the writer of Romans 13, ran a roadblock in Damascus, and and uh, his picture was up in all the post offices as a wanted man. And he was lowered in a basket from the city wall, and got away. So basically, you have to you have to grapple with the idea that Peter and Paul, the men who told us to be good citizens. Were had a different view of good citizenship than the craven and compliant Christians of today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, I feel like it almost edges into the church and state sort of debate, and I guess how it's been lost the context of that. The church and state, like in its original form, was basically um, formed under the banner of Christianity and protecting Christianity. But now it's sort of been changed. And, and I guess if if you ask somebody, what what's your understanding of church and state, it's protecting the state from the church. And it's kind of, they've yeah. flipped it upside down yes. over the years. I guess it's similar to, uh, as you were explaining Romans 13, I was kind of getting that, like the context of Romans 13. And as you said, is it's, it's yes. sort of been flipped by the modern church and Christians to sort of suit uh, some other sort of agenda, I guess. But I wanted to ask you, um, through COVID and through everything that's sort of been happening, have you noticed the new audience with uh, yourself and your church? Like, for example, um, there is no doubt in my mind, if you were here, I would be a refugee and I would be going to your church. <laughs> have you noticed something similar with Christians in Idaho or in America? Have you noticed that there's a new growth coming from everything going on?
0: Yeah, that, that's a very astute question. Um, in North America, America, there is a huge reshuffling that's occurring. Um, And over the last, well, I I need to back up. Um, Like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we were saying many of the same things, but we were sort of uh, the bad boys or out on the margins. um, Extreme people would call us extremists. Now, I like to think of myself as a moderate, the middle of the road extremism is to my right and left. Um, but other people thought we were kind of out there or were, we were kind of hardcore and, but the last two years have just completely blown that apart. It's just, it's completely different. Um, so Moscow where we are is a small town. Um, we're up in the panhandle of Idaho. If you know anything about the, uh, our our geography. It's a small town, about 20, 20 to 25,000 people. So it's a sleepy little town. And it's about the 10th or 11th largest town in Idaho, which is the size of Great Britain. Idaho is the size of Great Britain. And, uh, and so we're a small town. And our church was a moderate, moderately sized, you know, moderate sized church. But over the last two years, we have had hundreds of refugees show up mm-hmm. in Moscow. Uh, there's not a week that goes by where I don't meet one to three new families at church saying, well, we're here now. You, you know, <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we found the place and we're, we've enrolled our kids in Logos school and we're, we're doing the deal. Uh, it's a constant stream. I, I initially started by saying it was a refugee column. Uh, But then I started saying, you know, actually it's reinforcements. It's not a refugee column because these people are often the highly talented people who understand the times they understand what's actually going on. And they, they said, you know, I've got to get the heck out of California Uh, and California is emptying out the, in our political structure, we've got blue States and red States. Um, The blue States are, dominated by the progressive left and the red states are dominated by more conservative traditional um, understanding of life and sanity. Um, And blue states are, are losing people representation, businesses um, and Idaho is one of the top destination states for um, uh, people to go to. Uh, a, A few months ago, Number of months ago, I was I um, was talking to someone about the uh, U-Haul rates. So, if you if you want to rent a U-Haul truck to go from Portland to Boise, it's going to cost you ten times the amount, like nine hundred dollars, as opposed to renting one to go from Boise to Portland. Um, Portland is a blue blue city on the coast uh, because everybody everybody's going one way. The traffic is all one way. And that is affecting churches. That's affecting the, the the churches that are faithful enclaves, that that are not that have refused to play the game, and refused to shut down, refuse to do any of the foolishness, are exploding, um, growing like crazy.
1: I mean, do you accept Australian refugees, Doug, in <laughs> Idaho? <laughs> it's looking yes, quite appealing. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, we do. We, we actually, to be honest, we have a large contingent of Canadians. Um, yeah. We're just a few hours um, from the border and uh, uh, quite a few. Uh, Canada has gotten pretty bad and yeah. a number of Canadian Canadians have sought um, uh, for some sort of asylum or, or mm-hmm. Uh, refuge here uh, we would be happy to take you, you know, the, the, the issue would be getting here but we'd you'd be most welcome
1: maybe I'll come by canoe and I'll just I'll just row myself <laughs> over there it seems the only way I'm able to get off my island at the moment but um yeah I've actually been speaking of Canada I was really encouraged by a lot of the ministers in Canada who stood up against um yes. I guess, pretty dire sort of times. Um, I was encouraged in Australia by them. And, um, you know, we had a few ministers over here in Australia who stood up against everything. They created something called the Ezekiel Declaration and the Moses Statement. And they were these things that ministers sort of wrote. um, Why? And they stood up against the big Eva, the big church corporations and the government and said, we're not going to shut our doors. And I've been really encouraged by their faith. um, These great men who have stood up against Caesar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So really encouraged. Um, I wish that uh, I would hope that more had have done it. But, you know, we have to start somewhere um, and encouraged by people in Canada and around the world who did that. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the greater issue here, because I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that it's more than just COVID, because I'd hope that it would be not something like that, that would see churches go where they were. And I wanted to ask if you think um, similarly to me that it's a symptom of a greater issue with the modern sort of church. And, and if you agreed with that, sort of what you think those bigger issues with the modern church are and how we kind of remedy those things. Right.
0: Right, so the, the the bigger issue is the independence of the church, okay? Um, the, uh, if you look at uh, how God constructed human society, there are, uh, and this presupposes, uh, I'm going to be talking about governments for a, a minute, but all discussion of governments has to be, begin with the recognition that the foundational form of government is self-government which is only going to happen as a result of the gospel. So when the gospel is preached and a man believes and trusts in Christ and his heart is transformed, then one of the things that happens in his life is the fruit of the Spirit begin to manifest. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, self-government. Okay, So no other government can hold together without that self-government. Now, that said, there are three governments among men that were established by God directly himself, okay? One of them is civil government, which we already talked about Romans 13. God establishes every authority that exists in civil government. Uh, The second government is the government of the family, and uh, God uh, God established that in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Then the third government is the government of the church. So in Ephesians 4, Jesus ascended into heaven, He gave gifts to men, and he he established apostles, prophets, uh, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So, church government, family government, and civil government—those are the three governments that God directly created Himself, and and those governments are His deacons, His servants. Okay, so when we create governments, if you had a ham radio club, uh, you would have the authority to create the bylaws and and create the structure and government of a ham radio club, because that's something you're creating, okay, or a chess club or a quilting society. You know, you you have the authority to do that, but we don't have the authority to alter the governmental structure of the governments that God himself made. Now, these three families, these three governments are on a plane. They're not Stacked. They each have different responsibilities. So the government, the civil government, might be called the Ministry of Justice. The family is called the Ministry of Health, Education, and Welfare. The church is the Ministry of Grace and Peace. Now, these governments don't depend on the other governments for their existence. I don't I don't need to go to the civil government to get permission to function as a church right because it's not that that's not their lane that's that's not their responsibility that's none of their business now one of the things that's striking about this there's a very good book called uh, slaying leviathan by glenn sunshine that goes into this but the christian faith for the first 3 centuries of our existence was a persecuted faith and that means that all the essential doctrines the doctrine of the trinity and the you know the gospel what you see in the apostles creed all of the basics of christianity were hammered out during three centuries when we were not created by the civil society all all other re- major religions were established with the help of Civil, the civil government. Christianity took root and um, flourished in opposition to the civil government for three centuries. Uh, Constantine uh, wasn't converted until the fourth century, okay? So that means that baked into the Christian DNA is the understanding that the church exists independently of the state. The state we don't need permission. We don't need a permit. We don't need uh, a blessing. We don't need light to to get a license to operate. Um, We have our commission directly from God. So you asked what the next, uh, I I think this whole COVID thing was simply a beta test, a, an initial uh, trial run for the real thing. And I, I suspect the real thing is going to be over something like climate change. When you, When you see uh, all the emergency measures that they implemented and how many Christians went along with those emergency measures simply because the civil government declared that there was an emergency, Um, I think think this whole thing was a trial run. And what we need to do is get Christian leaders to understand that we don't have to shut down simply because they say we do. Uh, what what we have to do, we need to get from God directly in His Word. We don't need to go to the uh, a central bureaucracy of to talk to the director of churches opening and shutting. The Lord is the one who opens and shuts doors, not not the bureaucrat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I hope and pray that Christian leaders do take that upon themselves. And like you said, I. I've always suspected that this could be like climate change has been around. When I was a child growing up, it was a hole in the ozone layer um, that we're all going to die from and then it went to, you know, all global warming and now it's climate emergencies, so it's the same thing that's been sort of lingering for a long time prior to COVID and the emergency measures do seem to sort of fit up and there's actually articles that were released where people have said due to COVID and us being locked in our homes, the earth is healing, the birds are singing, the <laughs> fish are jumping and you can sort of see the, the subliminal messages that they're trying, to, they're trying to desensitize us to the idea that this is good so that it becomes normalized. And I hope and pray that the church is strong enough if we're faced with this in the future. And, and, you know, we don't shut down our doors again for something else, Um, because we need more than ever now a, a strong church. I think if you you know, I, I think strong churches lead to strong nations. I think very much so if you break the home particularly, you break the nation and, and home and families are things that are rooted in in Christ and the church. And right. that's something you do speak a lot about um, is the family. I know your your wife, Nancy, She she's written a few things about as well. I actually mm-hmm. follow your daughter as well. She's She's got some incredible things to say about motherhood and family um, and I really appreciate everything everything that your whole family, and it's, I guess it's a reflection on your headship and, and, and things like that as well, and your leadership with them. But I'd love to hear about your understanding of the family. You mentioned it then it's a ministry. um, And Mm -hmm. I guess it's testament in itself that it's so under attack in modern culture. It's family's belittled. It's turned upside down. It's sort of changed. But I'd love your understanding on what family is and and what we as Christians and as human beings should value with family, particularly for our future.
0: Right. Um, thank you for the kind words, but I, will, I want to get credit upstream. A lot of this has to do with my dad and my mom um, and, and the understanding of family that I got from them. Think, think about this. Think about it this way. I, I, I mentioned the three governments, family, church, and state. Well, churches are made up of families and towns and villages and nations are made up of families. So it's not like you've got three things in a row on a mantelpiece that have nothing to do with each other. Is sort of like the relationship of eggs to omelets. It's like a there's there's a, there's a certain porousness between these entities, because you're exactly right. A strong church requires strong families. A strong nation requires strong families. Uh, now, the way this works is, um, if I could use a, this might seem like a bizarre illustration, but the progressive left wants to treat society in the aggregate as a group of atomistic individuals. Like each person is a, a little BB or a um, like a ball bearing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's distinct and separate from everyone else. And then you put them all in a sack. All right. You put all these BBs in a sack and that uh, big sack is going to be like a beanbag chair where it's, you you push in and the whole thing is just sort of like, just like a beanbag chair now that added. And then what they'll do is they want to make pornography accessible and they want to legalize uh smoking pot and they want to do all these. And what they're doing there is they're greasing the BBs. They're dumping oil all over the BBs. So nothing sticks, nothing uh, coheres. All right. Mm-hmm. Now what a strong family does is it creates, a molecular structure to society as opposed to atomistic structure to society. Um, so if I'm just a solitary atom in a mass society, then the collective is always going to get the in a battle, in a one-on-one battle between me and the collective, the collective is always going to win, right? They, they can just roll right over me. That's why they want to isolate. They want to separate. They want you to stand six feet apart from every other Mm. hall bearing. Mm. (laughs) They, they, they they want you, they, they want you isolated. And that's, that is a part of the shutdown, the part of the lockdown um, where there are all kinds of people who see that this is crazy, but they think that they're the only one that sees that it's crazy because you're isolated Mm -hmm. from everyone else. If you're, if we were allowed to meet, openly and get together and, and someone preaches a sermon that says, this is crazy. (laughs) And everyone goes, yeah, 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 that's true. Well, all of a sudden we've got connections to each other. Okay. Well, that's what the, what the family bond does, husband and wife, and then the kids together. And then when the kids grow and then they marry, and then you've got grandchildren and First cousins once removed, and then you've you've got all these connections, and loyalties and allegiances. That that kind of tight knit community is going to be manipulated. But if we're if if I move to a big city, and I'm just all by myself, and I just know what I reading the newspapers, or I just know what I read online, I'm very easily manipulated. So Mm -hmm. I think their whole strategy is to erode and corrode the bonds that have traditionally held human beings together. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Marital bonds, um, doctrinal bonds, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. denominations, churches, and national bonds, tribal bonds, ethnic bonds what they what they want to do
1: is fragment us yeah it's um it's certainly you can see the agenda with the things that they attack you know divorces through the roof at the moment i'm sure in it's, it is in australia, i'm sure it's the same in america we've got uh, you know, gender is now a fleeting, you know, offended subject that you can't talk about. Um, you've got kids in schools that are five years old parading around with rainbow flags. Um, it's right. just you, you kind of look at the state of the family um, and and sort of the destruction and um, – You almost like can't help but see what they're trying to do because, you know, the family is, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the strongest thing to fight against everything. And I I wrote a piece once um, where I sort of said, you know, that we can look outside of the walls of our home and see the world decaying and, you know, plummeting towards the, the bottom of a cliff. But, you know, if we protect our four walls of our home and our family, that's the best thing as Christians that we can we can do moving forward. Um mm-hmm. and you're also a big believer um, from what I've read and and listened in protecting children, especially their education, because I think a lot mm-hmm. of this is able to happen because of the indoctrination that happens not only in public schools, but we're seeing it in Christian schools now as well. Um, I right. know in Australia um, we've had Christian schools um, have special days of the year that they get to wear mufti, like clothes to, um, and in representation of certain agendas that would suggest are not very Christian. Um, and so right. it happens everywhere, and um, I, for one, will – Homeschool my my kids. That's something I've made a decision about, and um, I know that you have a school that you have in Idaho, um, and I actually listen and uh, look at a lot of the curriculums you have there, and it's different. Um, You do classical Christian education, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people sort of don't understand the difference between that and. Christian education, Christian education, or I guess what we're seeing in schools today. And I was, I was hoping if you don't mind sort of explaining for listeners, the difference between classical Christian education and and the way that education is today for our kids and why you would personally choose classical Christian education over anything else.
0: Okay. Thank you. The, um, the answer to that has to, there, there are two elements of classical uh, um, education, classical Christian education that uh, bear mentioning here. One of them is, is uh, simply the pedagogy, the, the philosophy of education that uh, the classical educators pursue, which we pursue and which we have found is very effective. Um, and we're following uh, an, a, a talk that Dorothy Sayers gave in the 1940s, where she was hearkening back to the tr- medieval trivium. And she pointed out, this was her insight, that um, kids go through three stages of child development, the Paul Parrott stage, the Pert stage, and the poetic stage. And she said, she pointed out that these stages that kids grow through map very nicely onto the trivium, uh, the medieval trivium, which was grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. Now, we've employed that method of memorization in the early grades, uh, argumentation, analysis, taking things apart in the junior high years, and then rhetoric, presentation, literature in the high school years. And I'm using terms that may not be familiar. to. I I don't know what the Australian system is, but it'd be roughly the first stage would be five years old to... um, uh, eleven years old, and then uh, eleven to thirteen, and then fourteen to eighteen. Okay, the, those are the three stages, uh, and we found simply th- that as a methodology, it works very very well. It's just um, it's just a very good insight into human nature. That's that's sort of um, a practical pragmatic uh, side to it. The the worldview side to it that really matters an awful lot in the conflict that we're currently in has to do with uh, the classical as having reference to the, enti- the entire history of the church, all 2,000 years, and not just the last 250 years for Americans, or the last 150 years for you all, you know, it's it has to do with um, understanding that, that that my brothers in the faith include Augustine and Charlemagne, and not just um, George Washington, <laughs> right? Yeah. So in in America, particularly with Christian schools that aren't classical, there was a temptation. Uh, for the Christian education to become a little bit too provincial, or a little bit too American, as though uh, as though the church started in 1776 and and down to the present, well, you can see in the in the drive for multiculturalism and diversity and all of this, and the hatred of Western culture. That's a thinly disguised hatred of the Christian church. So what I'm interested in doing is defending what they're attacking.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. Um, So I believe that the Holy Spirit has been at work in our culture, in our civilization for 2000 years. And I like to tell people that I'm a conservative and I'm a progressive both. I mean, what do you, what do you want to conserve? Well, I want to conserve everything that the Holy spirit has done over the last 2000 years. Mm -hmm. If the Holy spirit has, has given us a gift like the elimination of slavery or given us a gift Mm -hmm. like monogamy, you know, the widespread practice of monogamy. I'm a conservative in that I want to defend and protect that I'm a progressive in that I want to progress toward whatever it is the holy spirit has in mind for us in the future mm. i'm not a progressive in the, se- the you know modern leftist progressives want to progress who knows where they mm-hmm. they they don't know <laughs> they don't know where they're going but they're making good time and mm-hmm. I, I want to uh, take the vision that we are given in scripture for the future of human society and progress toward that
1: mm. You once said something great, and I I use this quite often when speaking about um, uh, progressive ideologies, and that is stupidity can't sustain itself. And that's (laughs) something that you said, and it's brilliant because it kind of ties in with my views on eschatology as well. And it's funny, um, you know, I grew up with my father being a left behind series man. And as a child, that was like my scary movie that I got to watch watch the original um, Left Behind series. And, you know, I used to somehow sometimes sit with my dad and watch it. And, and growing up, I grew a real love for two books of the Bible. I like it all equally, but Genesis and Revelation are probably the two books of the Bible that I would read the most. And I'm incredibly fascinated with. I have to remind myself to not get too fascinated around Genesis six and things like that. I get a little bit lost in the rabbit hole, uh, with things like that, but I do really enjoy revelation. And, um, recently, like I'm talking only in the last few years, I've actually changed my eschatological, uh, opinions on things. And I've gone from my father's headship where I kind of really liked the left behind and sort of the John MacArthur um, sort of idea on right. things. And I've really shifted to now post-millennialism. And I've okay. really sort of sh- shifted away from these almost pessimistic eschatological views into a more positive one. And there was a documentary that you were in um, as, as a guest and, and someone spoke mm-hmm. to you about that. And I really liked that documentary because it was a really good one for people like myself who was dip- who were dipping their toe in, in the water for that. Mm-hmm. And you sort of said in that. Documentary, documentary that it was one of the most exciting theological uh, sort of transitions that you'd made and that you, you'd sort of likened it to a few different ones throughout your, your faith and, and your journey. But this was an, and I was like, I get it because I was there. And from there, I actually went, um, back to R.C. Sproul's chalkboard where I get a lot of good things from. And I realized he was post mill as well. And, um, he, he went through it in like a 10 part series in, in a lot of detail. I think Jeff Durbin had a series about it as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I sort of, through it, I was like, wow, this is a really exciting way to view the gospel. And I looked into statistics as well, just brief, Just I'll just briefly go into it. And, you know, we started off with 12 disciples. Uh, that's what we sort of started off with. And it kind of makes sense if you look at the world, like you would think based on, western nations and these corrosive ideologies you'd think that we're losing but if you look at china which is a non-christian nation there's Mm -hmm. over 60 something million people who identify as christians that's not even the ones who haven't participated in this survey that's just who identify and in context, Australia is a continent of 25 million people. That's nearly three times the population of Australia that are Christians. And it was kind of exciting to sort of see how the gospel has been working and I'm not going to try and butcher it and then pretend that I am a good theologian on eschatology or anything, but how much do you think that a pessimistic eschatology is affecting the church at large? And like, what's your sort of understanding on that for people who might not understand what a pessimistic eschatology is, as opposed to like a post mill sort of positive uh, eschatology.
0: Right. I think it has everything to do with why we're here in this fix. Um, in North America, um, we have tens of millions of evangelicals and if, um, if all the, even if every evangelical in North America was a communist, <laughs> we would have a communist government. If every, uh, if every evangelical was a Muslim, we would have a Muslim government. We'd be under Sharia law, um, but we in the faith have learned to pull our punch. We've learned to make ourselves salt without savor, um, and and I think that's largely the result of our eschatological teaching. Um, we have been taught to believe that things are going from bad to worse. So when things, and then finally when they get really really bad, Jesus is going to come again and whisk us out of here so it'll be like the world is god's vietnam and at some point we're all going to get helicoptered out of saigon and <laughs> uh, and, and god lost the war and that's too bad but he got his but he got his people out right mm. um well if you have that view you're not going to be trying to build anything that's a long term venture you're not going to be uh Trying to establish colleges or universities or seminaries, or do not, you're not going to be plant you're you're not going to be planting lots of oak trees, because mm. oak trees take time to grow. You you might have enough time to grow a cabbage, right? <laughs> but yeah. but you don't have time to grow a, a tall, stately oak. So con- consequently, I think that uh, a lot of what we um, are facing is the result of Christians taking themselves out of the action. Uh, we've just sort of dequalified ourselves and said, here, let us go over, stand on the sidelines, and, and let's watch you make a wreck of everything, and then Jesus is going to come back and take us out of here. Well, I don't think that that's correct, but I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because when the Christians dq themselves and step out, well, then— that that gives them a free reign to do what they're going to do and they're going to do what they do in line with their unbelief and then it crashes
1: hmm. yeah i am um, i think we should all start planting fruit trees and oak trees not for us but for our grandkids and their kids and um yes. it's it's a it's a good way to sort of look at life, you know, planting the seeds now um, and seeing the future that these trees, these things can um, support and be a part of their life. And I, I do much prefer this type of eschatological thought. It's a lot more positive and it makes me want to do a lot more. Now makes me want to have more kids, makes me want to <laughs> raise those kids right. And and then, you know, you, you have you look at like my my grandparents, for example, and how many People they've created, family they've created, and and it's exciting to think as Christians that you know. And it, it saddens me when I hear Christians say that they're not going to have kids or they don't want to because the world's too you know, uh, messed up at the moment and they don't want to subject right. their kids to those, they're waiting for the white horse in the clouds. And, yeah, it saddens me because I think the solution um, is, you know, we've been commanded to go out and disciple all nations and what better way to do that than raising kids mm-hmm. who are going to go out and to do those things. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is exciting, like you mentioned, having that transition. And there was a verse that you mentioned as well about how, you know, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until his enemies yeah. are made his footstool. Um, and it's like we've been told when he's going to come back. Um, and it is done in such a way that we we as Christians mm-hmm. have a responsibility to build that future until God's uh, divine um, plan takes place. But I sort of wanted to close, if you don't mind. Um, we we are a Christian conservative um, sort of uh I guess, uh, news website over here in Australia. And we do this podcast, but there are a lot of non-Christians who do actually tune in because we do similarly to you, we edge into the politics and the culture. So it does draw right. in non-Christians and, and, if you don't mind um, just spending just a, a little bit of time explaining to people what the gospel is, do your best Ray Comfort for me if you don't mind um, <laughs> and do a, a little bit of um, your understanding of the gospel for someone who might be listening in today and who might not um, you know, be aware of what the gospel is and how they could potentially be a part of that.
0: Well, thank you. That's a, uh, that's a wonderful invitation. I thank you for it. Um, <laughs> Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were given a charge in the Garden of Eden to stay away from one tree. God gave them the planet, and he gave them a free run of everything, And He told, but he said, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. Um, in Romans, Paul says that uh, the wages of sin is death. Uh, Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Um in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were dead in our trans, in our trespasses and sins. So, because of our first parents' disobedience, uh, we were plunged into a condition of spiritual death, which is not non-existence. Death is separation. In the Bible, death is separation from God. So, physical death is the soul's separation from the body. Uh, spiritual death is man's separation from God. So, when they sinned, uh, they crashed humanity. Adam and Eve were the entire human race, and they, um, they crashed humanity at that point. So humanity was shattered, lying in pieces. We still bore the image of God, but it was a shattered image. Okay, the, um, so the image of God is still there, but it's all busted up. It's all broken. Uh, God, in his mercy decided he was going to put it all back together again, and he promised in the third chapter of Genesis that he was going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah, notably in the New Testament, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, is called uh, the second Adam. So, the second Adam means that God is giving us humanity 2.0. So, we have humanity 1.0, now, in Christ, we have humanity 2.0, and the way you are transferred from the first humanity, the busted-up humanity, to the restored humanity is—God's mechanism for doing that is what the New Testament calls the gospel, and, and, and so we call it the same thing, literally the good news. The good news is that you can be transferred from the broken humanity to the restoration project humanity that is the church. So uh, the way that transition is made is that because Adam disobeyed, uh, he was under condemnation, and all his children were under condemnation. And so Jesus, what Jesus did when he came and lived a perfect sinless life and then died on the cross, he took that condemnation that belonged to us onto himself. And he can do that because he's an Adam. So just when, when the first Adam reached for the fruit of the tree, I've reached for the fruit of the tree. When he, when he went into spiritual death, I went into spiritual death because the whole I'm, he was the whole human race and I'm, I'm a human. All right. So he represents me. Well, in the same way, the Lord Jesus represented me when he died on the cross. So, Um, The first Adam disobeyed at a tree. The second Adam obeyed on a tree. So uh, what happened was the penalty that I owed God, um, the soul that sins shall die. Jesus took my sin. Jesus took my rebellion. He took my sinful, wicked, evil nature. He gathered it to himself, and he died. He was crucified. So my sin was crucified with him. And then he sank into the grave, taking my sin with him. And then three days later, coming up on Easter now, three days later, he came back from the grave. And when he came back from the grave, he didn't bring my sins with him. He left them behind him. So he died, uh, accomplished full satisfaction for my sins. He took them down to the grave, and then he came back. And so this is why Paul says, in Romans 6, all who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death. And the reason we've been baptized into His death is so that we can be crucified with Him, buried with Him, and then resurrected with Him. So everyone who is crucified into His death is also a partaker with Him in His resurrection life. And so that's what Christians mean when we talk about being born again. If you're born again, you're born again through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you are ushered into the visible church, which is God's kingdom on earth, and it's God's long-haul process of restoring the human race. So that's the basic gospel in a nutshell. How to be—and so what is God doing when he—what is it that you—what are you becoming when you become a Christian? Well, God promises you that he's going to turn you into a human being.
1: Mm. That is beautifully put. And um, I do hope and pray if anybody is listening today um, and, you know, they want to know more that they certainly reach out. Um, And I I sort of wanted to also give you an opportunity, if you don't mind, Doug, um, if you can sort of tell people where they can find you. I know you have ministries, um, you do a lot of sermons online and a lot of podcasts, like where can people go if they want to hear more about what you have to say and okay. possibly.
0: Thank you. Uh, probably the one, uh, there's a lot of things going on and, and the best place to get uh, access to all of them would be my blog. So um, at um, the address is dougwills.com and the name of the blog is blog and may blog. So if you, Type in blog and may blog or dougwills.com. My blog will come up. And if you open up the front page and just scroll down, you'll see links to everything that I'm involved with. Uh, New St. Andrews College, Christchurch, Sermons, uh, Logos School, all, all the things are there.
1: You're a busy man. You've you do. You've got a lot of things going on. That's for sure. And um, I'm I'm super honored that you made the time today to join me here on the Cauldron Pool Show. Um, as Christians in Australia, we really respect uh, what you're doing. And we think that, um, you know, uh, and and we pray that you continue to do good things. And we only hope that we can do something similar over here as well for Christians. So thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and um, God bless with everything that you're doing in, um, in Idaho.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time together with you.